This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. People throughout many Arab countries involved in a process of self-determination. In other words, themselves shaping the institutions of their government, defining the policies of their government, creating mechanisms of participation and accountability, um, defining issues of identity and pluralism, the most basic uh, elements of statehood and nationhood anywhere in the world, in any country, the Arab people, by and large, with almost no real exceptions, have never really gone through a process of citizen-based self-determination. We've had 22 sovereign, or we've had 22 independent Arab countries, uh, but none of these countries were really created by their own citizens. Many of them were created by European colonial powers. Some of them were created by small groups, whether a tribal group or a military group or some small group of people who, through military means, usually created a country and, and took over the leadership. But we've never had mass citizen-based state formation, nationhood, and self-determination. And we're starting, I believe, to see some of that happen now. And that's why this is such a historic moment. But it's also historical in the sense that it will keep on developing. It's a process of historical change that will go on and on and on. And it's not just a one-time event. This isn't just a bunch of demonstrators overthrowing a dictator. It is that at the simplest level, but it's much, much more complicated than that. And there are many indications now that we can see in the last year and nine months uh, almost uh, that we've had this year and you know, a year of nine months uh, since the overthrow of the Tunisian regime and then the Egyptian regime. Uh, we've had many signs across the region uh, that the process of transformation after the dictatorship is overthrown, that process is going to be complicated, uh, messy in some cases, and will take a, a long time, and has many, many dimensions beyond simply overthrowing the dictator. The other point about being historical is that if you disaggregate the different elements of what's going on in the Arab world, at least in those countries where change has started, and those primarily now are Tunisia, Egypt, and Libya. We also have change in Yemen to some extent. Syria is in the middle of a war, and change will, will happen there eventually, soon, I think. But, uh, and other countries to smaller extent, lesser extents, like Jordan, Morocco, Kuwait, um, Algeria, have pressures on them, Oman to an extent, have pressures within their societies from their own citizens or some of their own citizens for real change, real constitutional change. Uh, but in all of these cases, whether it's a complete uh, change of regime, an ongoing conflict or lower intensity pressures for change, we can see that the process uh, is, uh, uh, is encapsulating in uh, one period of time of about a year and almost two years now, processes of historical change that in Western countries sometimes took two centuries, 
between one and two centuries. And what I mean by that is that you have uh, a civil war, a war of independence, a constitutional uh, process, um, issues of uh, women's rights, minority rights, um, pluralism, accountability, um, all kinds of uh, issues that countries usually go through sequentially, one after the other. If you take the United States, by example, you had your Revolutionary War, or you had your anti-colonial war, your, li your liberation war, um, the Revolutionary War, and then you had the state-building exercise, the whole constitutional issue, which took you 150 years, and still people are debating today the role of the states versus the role of the central government and the Tea Party issues and taxation. And, uh, people are still debating fundamental constitutional issues 230 years after independence. Um, and then you had your civil war, and then you had your civil rights movement, and the, you know the, the great democracy of the United States, which is a beacon to the world, started out as a democracy in which only white men who owned, owned land and slaves had any rights. Nobody else had any rights. Women, black people, immigrants, they couldn't vote. They couldn't do almost anything other than limited role that society gave them. And But that changed over time, as rightly it should change. It took many, many years for these changes and a civil war and, uh, and many things in between. So that process of constitutional uh, state building um, is being compressed in the Arab world into a very, very tight period. And instead of going through these issues sequentially, one after the other, like most countries do, we're actually experiencing them all simultaneously, which is one reason why it's so complicated and looks so messy um, at times. I would mention six words that begin with the letter R that to me capture the essence of what's going on. And those six R's are revolt, rights, respect, reconfiguration, relegitimization, and rebirth. And I'll go through them one by one quickly. Revolt is what it is. This is a citizen's revolt. The interesting thing is it's happening in so many places at the same time in different countries. Each of these citizen revolts, these uprisings, is na nation-based. So Libya, Tunisia, Jordan, uh, Syria, each one is really happening within its own country. They're not an organized movement all across the, the Arab world. But the, this is a revolt by people who want to have the rights of citizenship. The second R is rights. This is about rights. They want to have the rights of citizenship, and they don't want to just be consumers or subjects in an order in which the people at the top basically decide everything. They, they want their rights, and they want them to be guaranteed uh, in a constitution uh, that actually is implemented. The third R is, uh, is respect, and respect has many different uh, dimensions. The, the people want to be respected by the state, by foreign countries, and by fellow citizens. So if you're a minority, for instance, you, people want to have full respect and full rights and to have a role in their own country equal to everybody else. They want to be respected by the government and not treated like idiots or um, simpletons who don't know how to do anything other than what the government tells them what to do or the government tells them what they should read, what they should see on TV. Um, and they want to be respected by, by the international community. 
One of the great problems of the modern Arab world is that the, I would say a majority, but many, many people, probably a majority of people across the Arab world, don't feel that they're fully sovereign. They're independent, but they're not fully sovereign. They feel that somebody else calls the shots, whether that's a country in the region, could be Iran or Israel or Saudi Arabia or some big country in the region who calls the shots in other countries, or it could be a foreign country like the US or England or Russia or something like that. Uh, people feel that they're not fully respected uh, as individuals or, or as countries. The fourth R is reconfiguration. There's a total reconfiguration now going on in Libya, Tunisia, and Egypt of every dimension of statehood and nationhood and citizenship. The institutions, the rights, the relationships, every uh, part of these states is being changed and reconfigured and being done by the people themselves. The fifth R is re-legitimization. You can see these Arab uprisings and the Arab awakening as, a, as an epic journey from, humility, uh, from humiliation to legitimacy. People who are humiliated by their own governments, by their own power structure, by foreign occupying forces, by international invading armies, many sources of their own humiliation, by economic disparity, poverty, uh, many reasons why people were humiliated. And they want to leave the world of humiliation and move to the world of, of legitimacy, um, to be legitimate, uh, to the government to be legitimate, the citizens' rights to be legitimate, the political action in the public sphere to be legitimate. And this is a, a big process of re-legitimization that we can see taking place all over the region. And finally, it's rebirth. It's rebirth in the sense that countries are being born uh, new and shaped by their own people. It's, it's as if they started from scratch. Uh, and if you look at the institutions of transition that we've witnessed so far in Tunisia and Egypt, it's as if you started from scratch and you went to the people and said, okay, if we're going to create government systems, how are we going to do it? What's the best way to do it? And they start by having a, um, an election for a temporary parliament. The temporary parliament picks a constitutional reform committee. That reform committee starts writing a constitution. Then they have a presidential election. Then they go back and have another parliamentary election. Political parties are formed. And then the constitutional committee comes up with a draft which people vote on. And so it's a step-by-step -step process to make sure that at every step, two things happen, that all the members of society are consulted, that everybody in the country has a say in the process, and B, that the process is seen to be legitimate by the people of the country. And, and this is really a, a process of, of, uh, of rebirth that is like recreating uh, the country from, uh, from scratch. You see the difference between the situation, say, in Tunisia and Libya and Egypt from the situation in Iraq where you didn't go through this same process. You had a foreign invading, an Anglo-American-led army, invading army that overthrew the old system, got rid of the Ba'athist state, terrible as it was, uh, but they removed it completely and then 
the, essentially the, the American-led occupation forces designed the new government system and said, okay, we're going to have quotas of Shiites, Sunnis, and Kurds, and we're going to do this, we're going to have a parliament, we're going to do this. And they tried to create a system that, they th that the Americans thought was democratic and equitable and pluralistic, but turned out not to be very, uh, very feasible. And therefore, Iraq is in a terrible mess today, much, much more uh, difficult to resolve than any of the other countries, because you've never really had a, a, a process of consultation that brought in uh, all, of, uh, all of the Iraqis uh, and allowed some people to take power, and, and even though they used elections and uh, other means like that. So there's a clear difference between the transitional process in Iraq, which is still by most Arabs seen to be not legitimate, because it wasn't really defined by Iraqis. Whereas the process in North Africa and the three countries is seen to be legitimate because the people themselves are trying to figure out uh, how to do it. So if we look at these transitional processes, if we look around the region and we see, especially in the three North African countries, but also a little bit in Yemen and we see hints of it in other places, but the three best examples we have so far are Tunisia, Egypt, and uh, Libya, because they're the ones that have started this process of re-legitimization re and state building. It's very difficult to predict how this is going to continue. Will it succeed to have a real dynamic uh, um, democratic system? Will there be regression? Will one group take over? Will the army take over the Muslim brothers or tribal groups or, uh, other, or foreign-aided groups? We have no idea how it's going to turn out. But I think we've had enough experience now in the last year and nine months to be able to see certain patterns of change. And, and I think if we use the tools of the journalist and the tools of the historian and try to kind of match between them, I think we can identify a few areas where we can see new phenomena, new realities, new developments that seem to me uh, to be, first of all, important, and second of all, will probably last. And I say probably because we don't know. We'll have to see. But I think we can see a series of these, and I'll mention, mention them quickly. The first thing we see across the region are new legitimacies. There are new legitimacies in many fields of life. Um, the legitimacy of the presidency, the parliament, the constitutions that are being formed, the elections, the court systems, new forms of legitimacy in many different fields, and that's why I use the plural legitimacies. Uh, and this is something that's very uh, powerful. And I would put it as the single most important underlying foundation for all of the other developments that are going on. And I would say we can use legitimacy as the criterion by which to measure future developments. So if you're wondering if something happens next week in Egypt or Tunisia, say the president closes the parliament or dismisses judges or the judges dismiss the president or something like that, or the army steps in, and you're wondering, is this going to last? Is this good? Is this bad? I think the criterion has to be, is it seen to be legitimate in the eyes of the people of that country? Legitimacy strikes me as the single most underlying criterion, and we see new legitimacies at 
play now. We also see new accountabilities, new forms of individuals and institutions that are accountable for how they exercise their power and their authority. There was virtually no accountability before under Hosni Mubarak, under Zain al-Abidin bin Ali, under Gaddafi. The government, the army, the police, the private sector in some cases, they could do anything they wanted. And they were not held accountable. They didn't report to anybody. Nobody really questioned them. Now we have accountabilities that are starting to emerge. And accountability is the critical operative mechanism of democratic transformation. For democracies to operate, there needs to be accountability, which ultimately means that power is accountable to the people. That authority is vested in the people, in the citizenry, the consent of the governed. Uh, and we're starting to see forms of accountability, where the president in Egypt now, or the armed forces in Egypt now, cannot just do anything they want. There are people who will challenge them, say, wait a minute, you can't do that. That's against the constitution, or that's not allowed by existing laws. And the most important thing about the accountabilities and the legitimacies is that both of them are rooted in this populist uprising, which we saw on TV, the Tahrir Square. Um, how that populist uprising, that mass populist movement for change, is translated into mechanisms of political accountability is one of the big questions that we'll have to uh, see how it develops. The third thing that is new and I believe extremely important is that we have a whole range of new actors who are active in the public political sphere. Even the public political sphere is a new, is a new phenomenon. But there is a public political sphere now and there's a whole range of new actors and the interesting thing about them is that they're new but they're not really new in the sense that the actors I'm talking about in Egypt, again, you say, or Tunisia, the armed forces, the revolutionary youth, student groups, labor unions, traditional political parties, new political parties, Muslim Brotherhood groups, Salafist groups, the more fundamental uh, Islamists, uh, football gangs, soccer gangs, um, uh, military uh, uh, groups, uh, businessmen's groups, all of these groups are now active in the public political arena. What's new about them is that they're working in public and they're legitimate. So the armed forces and the president and the judiciary and the parliament and the parties, they're constantly negotiating power relationships with one another. That's what's new. They're all legitimate and they're all active in the public sphere. What's not new is that none of them are new. They were all there before. But they either worked underground, illegally, or they played games. So the Muslim Brotherhood played, you know, wasn't allowed by law to operate, but it operated because it used the labels of other existing parties that were legal. They played smoke and mirrors games. Or you had people like the Salafis, who never really were a public political force. They worked at the community level. Uh, or the armed forces that was running the country for 60 years, but never out in the open, always behind the scenes. So you have all these new actors who are operating in the public political sphere and keep evolving. They keep changing. Because for the first time ever, 
they are accountable to the populist legitimacy that defines their citizenry. And we see this very clearly if you look at the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. Before the uh, first election, the first parliamentary election that happened, I think it was last, not this June, last June, they had uh, something like 50 percent of the vote. The Muslim Brotherhood won about 50 percent of the vote for parliament, and the Salafis won around 20 percent. But the Muslim Brotherhood had about 50 percent for parliament. When the presidential elections happened three, four months later, the, sorry, it was last November, uh, the um, parliamentary vote, and the Muslim Brotherhood won 50%. When the presidential election happened some months later, the first round of the presidential elections, in that six months in between, the Muslim Brotherhood was in parliament, and they, were, they didn't have full powers, but they were operating in parliament. They were on the, in the public eye, and people were not impressed. People thought that these guys were uttering slogans. They were not really addressing the issues that were important to people. And therefore, when the presidential elections happened, the Muslim Brotherhood candidate only got around 25% of the vote. He just barely squeezed into the second round. There was a huge drop in the people supporting the Muslim Brothers. Then when the second round happened, the Muslim Brotherhood, Mohammed Morsi, just barely won with 51% of the vote or something like that. And now, the latest polls in, in Egypt show that there's strong approval for Morsi and the Muslim Brotherhood. About 75 to 80% think that they're doing okay for various reasons, even though there's no parliament. But they, they'll see him in the presidency and what he's doing, and people like it. So you've had this up and down swing of the popularity of the Muslim Brotherhood in this last year, which is an extraordinary feat in the Arab world, because in the Arab world you never had any kind of up and down swings in popularity or, um, or electoral performance, because it was always the ruling party that won 90% of the vote, and it was predictable, and that's how it happened for years and years and years. So these political players, because they're accountable, are now evolving and they have to respond to citizen needs and citizen demands. And if they don't, they get voted out of office or they get less vote and, and they're out. We have new institutions, uh, political parties, civil society organizations. The judges are going to become more important, the judiciary, the presidency. Uh, new institutions are being created. The media is another one. And these new institutions like the new players that I mentioned, are all out there working in the public, and both of them are working according to the next important phenomenon, which is we have new rules. New rules, which are essentially the constitutions. And if there's one seminal, critical phenomenon that's taking place now, that again translates this, this issue of legitimacy and accountability into reality, it's the writing of the new constitutions. And in, we see it mostly in Tunisia and in Egypt, most in the most developed way. In Libya, it's just starting, and it will happen in other countries as well. The mechanisms by which these constitutions are being written and creating a context of the rule of law uh, is, to me, the single most important thing to keep our eye on to see if these transitions are going to lead us to really credible 
democracies and credible not to us here but to the people in those countries, to the citizenry. And the process of constitutional writing, writing constitutions, creating constitutions, requires a national consensus in these countries. It's, it's a process, it's probably the single most important element right now in the Arab transitions that are happening. And it's almost totally unreported in the Western press for some, some reason. Maybe it's just too technical or it's not dramatic enough or, or maybe people in the West are not used to Arabs writing their own constitutions. They're much more comfortable with people you know, burning flags or demonstrating in the streets because when Arabs do that, they get right on the cover of Time and Newsweek and, and they're everywhere. But the Arabs sitting writing constitutions and negotiating constitutional consensuses is, is hardly mentioned at all. Uh, and this is one of the great sort of professional failures of the mainstream uh, media uh, in the West. But these constitutional writing processes really are the most important thing going on right now because they touch on so many aspects of national life, uh, the values of the country, the ability of the, the pluralistic populations with many different groups, many minority groups, to reach a consensus, the ability to create a mechanism of the rule of law that can actually be enforced. These are critical elements of any serious modern state. And for the first time ever, ordinary Arab men and women are, women are involved in this process of writing their constitutions. And they're debating some really important, often dramatic uh, issues. For instance, in Tunisia and Egypt, you have the best examples. The issue of the role of Islam is a big issue now, um, being debated every day in, in all different fora in the media. People have demonstrations sometimes. They have political negotiating sessions. The role of Islam, uh, in other words, people are debating, is Islam the sole source of legislation and law? Or is it not the only source, but maybe the main source? Or is it not the main one, but a leading source, along with other sources? And when you, when you say that Islam uh, is the main source, or, the, or the, the top source, what does it mean for people who are not Muslims? And, and what does it mean for the minorities? Uh, and there are, across the Arab world, a whole range of minority groups. The majority of the Arab world is Muslim, mostly Sunni Muslim, with a small minority of Shiite Muslims. And then you have Christians and uh, Amazirs, and you have um, Circassians, you have Kurds, you have Druze, uh, many different kinds of Christians. Uh, you have small Jewish populations here and there, not many left, but you still have some. There's a whole range of minority groups all across the region. Um, and the interesting thing about them is that some of them are not Arab, culturally or ethnically, and some of them are not Muslim in religious terms. So there's a question that comes up in Tunisia that came up, and one draft of the Constitution said, Tunisia is an Arab Islamic state. And some Tunisians said, wait a minute, we have citizens who are not Arabs, and we have citizens who are not Muslims. So how can we say we're an Arab Islamic state? So they're debating these, uh, these issues. The role of woman is another one that comes up a lot. Uh, and there's a debate in Tunisia now about uh, 
when women and men are described in the Constitution, do they have fully equal rights? Are women equal to men, men equal to women, or do, do men have more rights than women? Um, this, these are issues that are being discussed, and it seems that in Tunisia they're going to come up with a compromise, which is, says that in the law, in the public, um, men and women are fully equal in their rights and their obligations and opportunities. But in the private realm, at home, uh, women are complementary to men. This is the term they want to use, complementary. Because traditional uh, Arab, uh, Middle Eastern families of all faiths, Jewish, Christian, Muslim, will see the woman's role primarily as homemaker, uh, supporting the man, but not being the main breadwinner. Very much as women were in the United States until probably the early 20th century or middle of the 20th century. The women stayed at home and they didn't work and they took care of the kids and they didn't necessarily need to go to college. And so that debate is going on. Um, it's lively. You have other debates going on about the role of the press. How much freedom and power should the media have? So this process of writing constitutions and creating the rule of law, when you combine that with the new institutions and the new actors I mentioned, what that gives you all together is a new world of contested politics, where in the public sphere, individuals, institutions, organizations can contest for power in a peaceful, democratic, constitutional manner, which is, again, unprecedented in the modern Arab world at, at a serious uh, level. Another new thing that is developing are some very important new balances. Balances between different forces that need to, need to find the balance between them. So you have, for instance, the, role, the power of the military and the power of civilian authorities. Historically, in the modern Arab world, the last 50 years, the military was the big power. The military and the police, the mukhabarat, the intelligence, the armed forces, they controlled power. That's changing now. It changed in Turkey, for instance, in the last 20 years. Now, Turkey, you have the civilians overseeing the military. In the Arab world, you're starting to see civilian elected legitimate authorities limiting the role of the military. It's not going to happen overnight, but it's starting to happen. So that's one balance that has to be defined. Another one is the critical balance between religiosity and secularism. The role of religious, religious values and the role of secular values. And you have this, this is more complicated because you have the issue of religion in the public sphere and religion in the private sphere. And you have religion for the majority who are Muslims, but you have people who are not Muslims. So how does the Islamic religion relate to minorities? But that balance of religiosity and secularism has to be defined. The balance between the power of the central government, which historically in modern times has been all-powerful, the central government decided everything for everybody, and the power of the regional and provincial and local governments, where before the modern period, before the creation of the Arab modern states, I would say before the, until the end of the Ottoman period, most power in the Arab world was very diffused. There wasn't a strong central government. You had the Ottoman authorities. They taxed you maybe once a year. 
once in a while they would come and conscript people, take them to to war, to serve in the army. But mostly they left people alone, and, and people ran their own local societies, their own local villages, towns, regions, with traditional local authorities based on either Islamic um, law or tribal traditions. Um, and so power was very diffused historically in the Arab world. You didn't have oppressive central governments, um, except in, in one or two ancient periods possibly. And then even there, that rule only pertained to the capital. Once you got out of the capital power, things were locally run. That balance between the central government and the provinces has to be defined again. And in some cases, you're going to see, you see already, for instance, in Iraq, uh, the Kurdish region in the north is essentially semi-independent informally. And you're going to see this in Syria, probably. You'll definitely see it in Libya. In Yemen, you'll definitely see it. There'll be a weaker central government with much more power decentralized based on regional identities, regional uh, resources, regional governments. Uh, and another balance is between the indigenous and foreign values. This is a very important issue in the minds of many people in the Arab world. It's not an issue that's widely discussed, but there's a strong sense of resentment among many people in the Arab world that they're being forced to adopt foreign values. And even though some of the things that they are fighting for, like, say, democratic pluralism, are universal values that people in Europe and East Asia and South America and North America have, they feel that it's, they're constantly being judged according to somebody else's rules. That their democracy is only valid if it looks like the democracy in the United States or in France. And, and they don't like that. Um, so this, this uh, the role of women, the role of youth, the role of minorities, uh, the, the issue that just came up now of freedom of expression, where in the West, absolute freedom of expression by the individual is the ultimate value. Whereas in our region, the freedom of expression by the individual is severely curtailed in some cases in favor of the collective security and dignity and the integrity of the group to which the individual belongs. If it's the family, the tribe, the clan, the religion, the whatever it is, where the individual rights are constricted by social traditions and individuals in some cases have a bit less freedom of speech than they do in the United States and, and France and Canada. So the question is, well, who, who decides what is the right amount of freedom of speech? And if people in the United States aren't insulted if somebody offends their religious figures, people in other parts of the world are offended. And therefore, this is a great debate going on about whose values really matter most. And the last one I'd mentioned is the balance between public and private, uh, the public and the private realms, uh, the public sphere and the private uh, sector are uh, two arenas that have been traditionally um, been dominated by the public sector. And now there needs to be a new balance, especially for investment, job creation, exports, etc., to, to deal with the economic stresses. Another new thing that we see starting to happen, it's very slow, and it's a, in a way it's a culmination of all these other things. We can start to see the outlines of a new social contract, a new ruling bargain between the governed and the governing, a new 
formula by which the principle of the consent of the governed is actually implemented so that the institutions and mechanisms of power and statehood are acceptable to the citizens who live under this system, a new social contract. And one of the great demands that are being made by many people across the Arab world, and this again is woefully underreported in the West, one of the great demands is for social justice. These revolutions or uprisings were motivated by several powerful forces. I'm not going to get into the beginning of how they started because I'm sure many of you have heard many talks and read about them, but it was a combination of material factors and intangible factors. Material factors like jobs and income and um, um, clean water, affordable housing, uh, and, and then intangible issues like respect and uh, abuse of power, corruption. Um, and it was the combination of those two that caused this phenomenon, this uprising, to explode and to, to grow all over, all over the region. And the question of social justice has, from the very beginning, was a very powerful driving force, but it was always, it, it was always expressed subtly and not, people didn't carry a flag say, I want social justice. They talked about dignity. They talked about respect. They talked about legitimacy. They talked about equity and fairness. And what they're talking about is things like health insurance, um, helping poor families, access to uh, reasonable education, so that not only the rich and powerful get ahead and everybody else takes care of themselves and usually doesn't have the means to take care of themselves. So social justice is one of the powerful driving forces that's driving these uh, revolutions, and it will ideally shape the new social contract that comes about. Uh, and this is something that is starting to happen. So if you take all these new elements that we can identify, these are the ones that I th see happening and I think are the most important. There's many others that we can identify, but it's not clear if they're going to last or if they're going to just fade out uh, one day. But these are new, these elements strike me as genuinely new, significant, and probably lasting. How they come together and shape a new system remains to be seen. There may be some countries where a pluralistic democratic process takes shape and takes hold and goes on for years and years and develops nicely. There may be others where the democratic process is interrupted by massive economic stress, military conflict if there's a war in Iran and with Iran and Israel or the United States. This will be a huge setback to some of these processes. Uh, there's many factors that could upset this. If the Syrian situation gets worse and worse and a sectarian civil war in Syria spills over into Lebanon and Iraq and Turkey, things like that could upset these processes. So there's no guarantee that any of these countries are going to become stable, pluralistic democracies. But my guess is that right now the only thing we can do is say these forces, these new phenomena are already operative. We can see them in operation. And you see them in operation most clearly in the process of people writing their new constitutions. This is one of the most exciting and most important things going on. 
uh, now. And if you put all these things together, you essentially see three things. First, you see that there is a, slowly you see a natural alignment coming into being between the citizen, the society, the state, and the country. The citizen, the society in which they live, the state, which is the government, and the entire country, because the government isn't the whole country. And these are becoming more normally aligned, where the citizen has rights and works in society and has a relationship with the government, and they all shape their country. Before, there was only the power of the government, and that defined everything else. Society and citizen were subservient to the government, and the government and the state were the same thing. Iraq was Saddam Hussein. Egypt was Hosni Mubarak. There was no difference between state and, and, and uh, government. Now there is. Uh, so that's the first thing you're seeing, this natural alignment. The second thing you're seeing is this process of self-determination that I mentioned, which is starting to happen. And the third thing, which is the ultimate prize, if all of this works out well, the third thing you're seeing is possibly the achievement of genuine sovereignty in some uh, of these Arab countries. Genuine sovereignty meaning where the citizens feel that they actually shape the policies of their government in the best interest of their people and that their policies of their governments are not set by other foreign governments in the interest of those other foreign governments, whether it's Iran or Israel or Saudi Arabia or the US or Russia, whoever it may be, but that they are really sovereign. They control their resources, they control their policies, they control their, uh, their institutions. The last point I want to make is about the question of uh, minorities and, and uh, pluralism. If there's a central theme that runs across many of these changes, it can be captured in the issue of, uh, of uh, pluralism uh, and minority groups. Um, the range of minorities in the Arab world is huge. As I mentioned, I named uh, some of them uh, before. Um, the manner in which all of these groups fit into this new evolving system of governance is going to be critically important for the minorities themselves, but also for the majorities. Because how you address the rights and responsibilities and opportunities of minorities in a pluralistic democratic system tells you a lot about the majority in your country. If you don't give minorities equal rights and equal opportunities, then you're oppressing them to some extent or denying them some of their um, some of their rights. And one of the things that we've seen very clearly over the last uh, uh, year and nine months is in all of the activism, whether it was the big demonstrations in Tahrir Square or whether it was the work of civil society groups or people meeting quietly and working out constitutional issues, whatever, or, or the media, whatever arena you looked at, you can hear very clearly a series of themes that have come out from, uh, from society. Uh, and these themes are really about uh, issues that people 
care about. And I would define them uh, as issues that uh, deal with a series of uh, abstract notions, but these abstract notions mean a lot to the people individually. We're talking about identity, we're talking about rights, we're talking about legitimacy, we're talking about uh, pluralism, uh, accountability, uh, dignity, respect, all these intangible, they're wonderful words. They mean a lot, uh, but they're all very, very abstract. Um, and they're really the cry of the majority that's been abused by its own abusive power structures and foreign occupying or invading armies. And it's also the cry of the minorities who are saying, we have to have our rights, we have to have equality, we have to have respect, we have to have opportunity. So the majority and the minority really are talking about the same thing when they are working to try to create these new systems of government. The grievances that everybody has in these countries against the former regimes, those grievances are quite common. It doesn't matter if you're Christian or Muslim or Druze or Kurdish or Jewish or whatever you are, you, you, everybody suffered in these old uh, systems. So how, the, how the, uh, the new constitutional mechanisms come to grips with the issue of minority rights um, to affirm majority right, rule but protect minority rights, to make sure that everybody in society has equal opportunities as much as possible to basic issues like education, like healthcare like political participation. How those mechanisms are worked out remains to be seen. We don't have a clear idea, but the debate is active right now. And in Egypt and Tunisia, every day there are discussions about, uh, about these issues. The mainstream Muslim Brotherhood groups who are the biggest force now in, these Arab, in most of the Arab countries, in Libya they didn't do so well, in the elections, but in Tunisia and Egypt, Morocco, Kuwait, other places, they're dominant. Um, and they're a bit ambiguous about some of these issues. And this is the big fear that some people have, that these Muslim Brotherhood groups don't really feel that men and women are equal, or don't really feel that Christians and Jews have the same rights as, um, as Muslims, or don't feel that people who are not Arab, like Kurds, have the same rights as Arabs. So there are concerns by some people about what would happen if these Muslim Brotherhood groups were to achieve full power and create the laws as they want or define the constitutions as they want. And, and the Muslim Brotherhood is aware of these criticisms and is trying to respond to them in a manner that is not yet satisfactory or clear to everybody. But again, this debate has started. And the Muslim Brotherhood, or the armed forces, or the Arab nationalist groups, or tribal coalitions, all these major groupings, none of them can just impose their will anymore. Some of them may try. The army tried to do that in Egypt. And it got pushed back by the Muslim Brothers, the revolutionary youth, the secular groups, and in some cases, the, uh, the courts, the judges. So th this, th this great accountability mechanism that I 
mentioned earlier, is at play here, and it will kick in with the issue of the uh, rights of minorities um, and how the dominant attributes of our societies, which are Arabism and Islam, how those two dominant identities will translate into new political and constitutional structures that take account of the rights of people who are not Arab and who are not Muslim. And this remains to be seen. It's, it's one of the most important tests of the new systems that are, that are being created. The important thing is that these systems are being negotiated in the public political sphere. And, and this is why I remain quite hopeful uh, that it's very difficult now for people to make deals in smoke-filled closed rooms or to make deals in, in army officers' clubs like used to be uh, the case uh, before. And the last point is simply that this is, is, this is a historical process. It's not going to be resolved next month or next year. It's going to take decades, like it took centuries in this country, for women to get the vote and for black people to get the vote. And uh, it's going to take a long time for these processes to work themselves through until we get a clear idea of what is the consensus in society about these issues and what are the mechanisms of constitutional, pluralistic, accountable, and democratic governance that a majority of people would like to see uh, come into being. We don't know the shape of those, uh, those mechanisms uh, yet. But all we can say now is that something historic and historical has started, and there are these elements that we can identify. And the uh, important thing is for, I would say, for people in both societies, your societies and our societies, to engage much more with each other, to discuss these issues, to learn more about what's going on, um, and not to leave this profoundly important, this epic, heroic process of re-legitimization of entire societies, not to leave it to a small group of activist politicians or army officers, as had been the case for the last uh, 50, 60 years, which has led us to the catastrophes that we've experienced. So I will end there and thank you very much and look forward to your questions and comments. I wouldn't use that phrase, uh, separation of church and state. I, uh, that's a very American phrase, a very sort of Western phrase. I think there, I think the Islamists. Well, I'll answer it. I think the answer simply is yes. There are, I would say, majorities that are receptive to a separation of the institutions of statehood from the personal values of religious piety. And we have evidence for that. We have evidence for it now in polling, which we never had before. For instance, you find that the, the majority of Arabs, this is from a poll that was done last year by a group in Doha, in Qatar, the Arab Center for Research and Studies, very, very 
serious poll that was done across the entire Arab world. And it showed that a big majority of Arabs in many Arab countries across the region were very personally religious, that they put high value on religious morality, and most of them were Muslims. But an equally high number, almost, said that they don't want religious people running their societies. They want the government system to be um, shaped with religious morality. And what they mean by that is they want the system to be equitable, to not to have corruption, not to beat up people without a reason, without a judicial mechanism, not to steal money, not to abuse power, to show mercy, to show uh, to have justice, these fundamental values that most Muslims feel are the values of their religion. And so that when they say they want religious values to shape their society, that's what they mean. But they don't, they say explicitly they don't want religious people to run the country like, say, is happening in Iran. And so there's a clear distinction between public political authority and uh, religious institutions. Where is the blend between them? This has to be worked out. They, they, this has to be negotiated and defined by the experience of the next you know, 10 or 20 years. It's interesting that the Muslim brothers go up and down in the polls. They're very erratic uh, in their behavior and in their uh, popularity. And if they do well, they get high marks. If they do badly, they, their support drops. So it's not that people are wedded to the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, but they gave the Muslim Brotherhood their vote um, in many cases in the first instance because they trust them. It's a question of trust. They see these people as religious, uh, pious people who will, if they have power, will infuse power with justice. That's, what, that's why they, they trust them, they know them. And also these Muslim Brotherhood groups and others were the only people who challenged the old regimes. So they kind of owed them a political debt. They respected them. But they also don't give them a blank check. They say, you know, we'll vote you in. Now you've got a service. We need jobs, we need water, we need hospitals. If they don't deliver, they get voted out. And this is what we've seen up and uh, not voting out anybody yet, but they, their level of support drops if they don't perform well. Um, in Turkey, we've seen the opposite, where the Muslim uh, Islamist groups, the Justice and Development Party, did well and got re-elected three times. They've been re-elected at the national level because they've delivered, they've done, they've done well. So this remains to be seen. Also, it's not in every Arab country where the Islamists have done well. In, in Libya, they, they didn't do very well at all. They only got about 15% of the vote, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, in other countries, they, uh, they do better or worse, depending on the local... Uh, conditions, but I think we need to see the religious parties as political actors more than as religious actors. Uh, this is the mistake that many people make in the West, I believe. They look at these groups as religious, as being driven purely by religion. And if they're dr being driven purely by religion, they would not get into parliamentary elections and, and they would do other things in society which is what the Salafists did. They never got into politics. They just worked at the community level and spread the word of Islam and did the, the good deeds that they thought Muslims should do and take care of the needy, etc., etc. Um, but these are political 
movements more than they are religious movements. And, if, and many of them were reluctant to get into politics. And there's a big debate among the Islamists themselves. There's a whole range of, there's a big variety among the Islamists. Some say we should have nothing to do with politics, like in Hezbollah and Lebanon. For years and years they said, stay out of politics, it'll corrupt you, it'll ruin you. And then they realized that they had to get involved in, in the parliament because they needed to be involved in how the government was, uh, was run. So there's a, the, the Islamists are not monolithic. There's a wide range of views uh, among them. But if you see them as political actors, uh, I think you'll get a more accurate picture of what they really represent and therefore what is it that they, uh, they might do. And the last point I'd make there is that since they've been in power for this short period of time, in places like Tunisia and Egypt, they've, uh, they've modified their positions. For instance, the Islamists for years used to criticize the government the governments for their economic policies. And they would attack the World Bank and the American AID and the IMF, and they'd say the Arab governments are pawns of the Western institutions. So what did Morsi do? The, who was the first delegation he met with when he went into office? The IMF. He needed $4 billion from the IMF. And he met with them and they negotiated a deal. And when Rashid Ghannoushi, the head of the Nahda party in Tunisia, which is the leading Islamist party, which is now leading the coalition and government. When he got into power, people said, well, what about our tourism industry? Because Tunisia depends very heavily on tourism for income. And they said, are we going to ban alcohol? Are we going to ban European women from wearing bikinis on our beaches? Because that's a big source of tourism. And he said, absolutely not. They're welcome to come and they can drink beer and they can wear bikinis. And, and because this was an overriding imperative of the, of the state, and the economy, and the majority of Tunisians felt this was okay, as long as they didn't you know, do anything that offended morality more deeply than that. But they said this was a level of um, behavior that was acceptable to them as, as Islamists in power. So I think we need to look at these Islamists with more nuance um, and see them as political actors who are in fact very deeply accountable to their publics. Tribal mentalities, even within each country, how to 
move from that in such a short time? Well, it's not easy to have instant transformation into modern, democratic, pluralistic, secular countries. And that's not going to happen. We're going to have... That's why I mentioned these balances that are so important. But what's so important now is that there's an active process of negotiations going on to define these balances. So how religious, how secular, how Arab, how tribal, how Arab nationalism, tribalism, secularism, private sector, which of these values is going to dominate? Um, this, we don't know which of these is going to prevail. My guess is in each country it'll be different. For sure, Yemen and uh, Libya will be very tribal. Uh, and that's why the Islamists are, didn't do so well in Libya, because the tribal identity is much stronger. In a place like Egypt, you don't have tribalism. Uh, so the Islamists have done uh, much better. Uh, in a place like Syria, you have a range of different identities, uh, uh, Christians, uh, Muslims, Alawites, Kurds, Druze. Uh, you have different, so it's very pluralistic, ethnically and <laughs> religiously, and they, they will come up with a different balance of, uh, of identities. Uh, so I, that's what makes it so interesting. Each country is going to be uh, different. They won't all follow the same uh, pattern. Uh, I would just say that in the United States, you had that same mix of different uh, identities in the beginning. It's just that the, the white guys killed everybody else or made them slaves or threw them off their land and made them, you know, uh, the Native Americans. Um, so it, it wasn't, so you had pluralism in, in, in North America, but it was a colonial situation where the white guys, and it was the guys because the white woman had no rights at all either. Um, but it, after a couple hundred years and a civil war and a genocide against the Native Americans and a couple of, three, four million blacks who were killed, you, this eventually was seen to be unacceptable, unethical. And it's to the credit of the United States that ultimately it saw the, the criminal nature of these behaviors and changed the law so the United States today doesn't do those kinds of uh, things that, it, that were perfectly acceptable 200 uh, years ago. And this is one of the strengths of, of the United States, that it, it made this uh, uh, transformation. Um, this, the Arab countries going through these transitions can learn from the experiences of other countries. They don't have to repeat any of these same things. The other thing I would mention is that there is a long tradition of pluralism in Arab countries. Um, and while there isn't a long tradition of constitutionalism with pure equality under the law, there is a strong tradition of pluralism uh, and coexistence in these countries. So if you go to if you go to the ancient Arab cities, you look at Damascus or Sana'a or Jerusalem or um, Beirut or any of these older cities, it's interesting. You find the Christian quarter, the Jewish quarter, the Kurdish quarter, the Armenian quarter. You find the different, uh, the Armenian is more recent, but you find these going back in antiquity in some cases, you know, a thousand years. So there is a tradition of different groups coexisting with one another. Uh, and hopefully that will be institutionalized in the... Uh, in the, new con in the new constitutions as they develop. We have time for about one or two more questions. And do we have any students? We always like to make sure the students speak. Any? I see you're all driving in the corner. Okay, uh, you mentioned that um, 
the Arab states could learn from past experiences of other countries. Um, so with that in mind, what do you think the uh, role of the U.S. should be like, in situations, well, specifically in Tunisia, Egypt, and Libya, and how much of a role do you think they take in like, pretty much just being involved at all or nothing? How, and how, how much of a role do you, um, the people in those countries want to see from not only the U.S., but the West in general? Uh, that's a question that's often asked by people here and also in our region. People are debating all the time. Uh, for instance, Syria today. What should foreign countries, not just the West, but what should foreign countries uh, do? Uh, what should India do? What should South Africa do? What should Brazil do? Um, uh, Japan. You know, there's many countries around the world that have you know real power and can do something. Uh, I think the answer to that is first of all is two things: to be consistent and to be humble. And both of those things are very difficult for Western countries to do, to be consistent or to be humble. They're pretty inconsistent in their foreign policy. So they support the uprising in Syria, but they don't support the uprising in Bahrain. They support implementing UN resolutions in Iraq and Kuwait and Iran, but they don't support implementing UN resolutions where Israel is forced to change. There's massive inconsistencies in how many Western countries behave. And humility, I think, is the most important thing. I think the, the Western world, the US, England, France, uh, people should realize that this is a situation where not only are Arab people, not only are ordinary Arab citizens involved in a process of self-determination, but they're actually driving the process. And the West is, is following, is catching up to them. So what, the, what I think the US should do best is make it clear what it stands for and what it supports. Does it support citizen-based self-determination? If it does, it should say, well, uh, we support this wherever it happens and the US will provide whatever assistance people ask of it, but it should do it consistently across the board. It shouldn't cherry pick which revolution it supports and which uh, it doesn't. Because ultimately, democratic pluralistic countries are in the best interest of those countries and in the best interest of foreign countries, including Israel and Turkey and Iran and the US and everybody else. So I think be consistent and then be humble. In other words, just listen to what these people are doing and talk to them and find out what they want. Find out if the US again truly believes, which I think it does, in the principle of the consent of the governed, then try to find out what it is that the majority of people say in Syria or in Bahrain want. What are they asking for? And provide the assistance that those people ask the United States to provide. Not for the US to say, well, we'll only give you, um, you know, communications equipment because we don't want to give you anything more than that because you might use it against us or something like that. That kind of uh, partial, self-centered, uh, discriminating assistance is, is is insulting. Uh, not only is it not helpful, it's insulting to people. So the U.S. either supports freedom or it doesn't. Um, and I think this is the consistency and humility are the two things that I would uh, suggest any foreign government, not just the U.S., should, uh, should study uh, and use to uh, define its policies. Any other? If not, I get, oh, yes, yes. Yeah. You mentioned uh, how the free press is evolving societies in places like Libya where there wasn't a free press, or, or in Egypt where it's very limited. 
Um, can you explain a little further, maybe give some examples about <coughs> the stages or development or maybe protections? Uh, you're talking about the free press? Well, I just made that reference to the freedom of expression in relation to the recent demonstrations that happened around the world. Many of them were critical of the U.S. because of the film that was offensive to Muslims. And the overwhelming defense of that film, people agree, even Obama said it's an insulting film, it's terrible, the U.S. is against it. But there's freedom of expression in this country. And it's absolute freedom of expression. It's not relative, it's absolute. I, I did a little bit of research on this, and I, re I found out the other day that you can, it's okay to burn the American flag. I could take an American flag, put it on the floor, step on it, and burn it. And, and nobody, I mean, you might beat me up, but you, you couldn't take me to court. And if you beat me up, I could probably take you to court. But I was quite surprised by that. I thought that the flag was inviolable, that it was a symbol of national sovereignty and identity, but apparently not. The only thing that you can't destroy is money. You're, you, you, can't you can't burn a dollar bill, it's against, and, and you can't burn your draft card back in the Vietnam War demonstrations, burning an, an official American government document apparently is a crime. But I, the flag, I was surprised. But anyway, the, the, um, the freedom of expression is absolute and total in this country. So you can, you can talk about Jews, you can talk, you can do Holocaust denial, you can talk about black people, you can talk about gays, you can do anything you want. Uh, and it's protected by the Second Amendment. Uh, in most of the world, that's not the case. In most of the world, the freedom of expression is, is constrained by social norms. In some cases, by legal norms. In France, you cannot deny the Holocaust by law. And if you deny the Holocaust, you get taken to jail. Uh, you get taken to court and then you get sent to jail. Um, there are some countries that put limits on freedom of expression because the social well-being and the calm and stability of society is seen to be more important than the, than the absolute freedom of the individual. So there's this fundamental intellectual cultural difference between the value that the United States puts on the freedom of the individual Whereas in the rest of the world, the individual's freedom is curtailed a little bit, in some cases, for the well-being of the entire society. And that's perfectly reasonable, you could say. Uh, the question then becomes, who has the right to impose their values on other societies? I mean, what if Muslims came to this country and said, look, you are obligated by law to give 5% of your income as a tithe to charity as your almsgiving, and it's, you're obligated, you must do it, and you don't want to do it, you're not Muslim, you don't want to do it. But Muslims say, this is how we live, this is how God help, tells us to help the needy. So who, who, who decides, does America tell the rest of the world that freedom of expression is absolute and everybody has to live with it, you better get used to it? Or does the rest of the world tell the United States the U.S. has to live by foreign rules? This is a very important philosophical a question which, which has to be resolved. If, if the United States insists that its definition of freedom of expression is going to guide how people around the world are going to live, then that seems to me a modern form of intellectual colonialism, where one party says, well, this is how it's done and you have to get used to it. Uh, so I'm quite critical of, uh, of that. I'm all for freedom of expression, but I don't think it can be 
absolute. And, and where it's not absolute, it has to be negotiated in a reasonable manner. So it's not for me to come and tell an American or a Canadian, this is where your freedom of expression stops. It, it has to be somehow worked out over time where people uh, feel, now you have in this country, you, have, you don't have laws about criticizing other people, but nobody stands up in public and says black people are lazy, or Hispanics are oversexed, or Jews are money-grubbing thieves. Nobody says that. You're allowed to say it. They used to say it 50 or 100 years ago. It was in the papers all the time. Black people are lazy. Or black people aren't good enough to be quarterbacks in football. Well, we've learned quite differently from that. But uh, uh, now people are allowed to say those things by law, but they don't say them. Why do they not say them? Because it's offensive to other people. They're not going to get taken to court, but they're going to get socially ostracized. They're going to get pushback from society. So, you know, why is it that the United States allows social norms to curtail freedom of expression when it pertains to the sensitivities of Americans, but doesn't do that when it pertains to the sensitivities of other people, including Muslim Americans who are Americans as well? So there's some issues, again, of consistency, of fairness, and I would argue that we still have problems with colonial mentality that the United States was never a colonial power like the British and the French were. They never ruled other countries and physically, militarily ruled them, with the exception, I think, of the Philippines, maybe. But, but there is a kind of intellectual colonialism about modern America, that our way is the best. So this is a, a real, real live debate. That, and it, 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 unfortunately, it's not being framed in that way in the public arena. I wish more people would see it as a debate that we have to talk about and, and see if over time there can be some kind of middle ground. All right, we'd like to thank everybody for coming. Uh, please remember, Wednesday, 1 o'clock, uh, the Policy Ambassador. Ronnie, thank you very much. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu.